You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, February 17th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Police investigations take center stage on the California report. The San Francisco police chief is under fire for the misuse of a sexual assault survivor's DNA, while new transparency laws are unveiling other misconduct that once flew under the radar. After regional news and weather, KVMR's Felton Pruitt talks to Nevada County's Mike Dent about the return of the one-day event that records a snapshot of our unhoused population. We end with an essay from Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. San Francisco's police chief is under fire for multiple scandals surrounding the city's police department in the past week, including the misuse of a sexual assault survivor's DNA information. Chief William Scott says he's also launched an investigation into reports that an official police department Twitter account liked a tweet from a group that mocks George Floyd. The site is disrespectful and disgraceful. And personally, I find it offensive and disgusting. Scott apologized to Floyd's family and the public at a city police commission meeting last night before turning to revelations that the SFPD misused a sexual assault survivor's DNA to identify and arrest her for an unrelated crime. He says police will own their mistakes, but implied there may be more to the scandal. We want to ensure that this never happens again. But I found facts that I believe that are not under my responsibility or the police commissions that need to be investigated and made transparent. Misuse of the sexual assault survivor's DNA was brought to light this week by San Francisco's district attorney. Tension between the DA and police chief erupted two weeks ago when Scott accused the DA's office of withholding evidence and moved to cancel an agreement that puts prosecutors in charge of police shooting investigations. That controversy now involves the state attorney general as mediator, with closed-door negotiations set to continue into next week. The first records released to KQED under an expanded police transparency law signed by the governor last year give the public a glimpse into how police departments investigate officer discrimination. The police department of Avenal, a small town in the Central Valley, cut the pay of a sergeant for using a racial slur while on duty. KQED's Suki Lewis reports. And a warning, you'll hear a bleeped racial slur in this piece. Investigator T.J. Law with Law and Associates Investigations. Have been On a hot day in September 2016, an investigator hired by the city to look into the allegations present with me at this interview with Sergeant Darren Pearson sat down with Sergeant Darren Pearson, who'd been a cop for 27 years, to ask about a comment he'd made a few weeks earlier. Tell me if this uh, if this sounds familiar to you, not to put any words in your no, mouth. No, that's okay. When I get close to retirement and someone says something about the cops shooting black people, I'm going to say, I've never shot a That would probably be somewhat close. Okay. Pearson says he'd been out on patrol with a trainee officer, and they'd met up with the assistant chief and a citizen volunteer so that the assistant chief could hand off some information. The four men started chatting, and the volunteer mentioned a woman they'd run into earlier. Over there, and she was making a big deal. Hold my hands are up. Don't shoot me. I know you guys all like to kill black people and all that kind of stuff. Pearson says in his frustration with people who think all cops are like that, said, Sooner or later, somebody's going to say something like that. Like, you know what? Just relax. 
I haven't, I haven't shot a in six months. That, that comment was not Darren Pearson. Avenal Police Chief Rusty Stivers has known Pearson for 30 years. They both worked at the Kings County Sheriff's Department for 20 years before joining the newly formed Avenal PD. I know he said it and he can't take it back, right? And, um, but that he never displayed that in the field. That's why it was kind of a, a shock to us and that's why it was dealt with the way it was dealt with. The chief cut Pearson's pay by 5% for four months. Pearson retired in 2017 and, according to his Facebook page, now lives in Texas. My big question was that it didn't really seem to look into Pearson's attitude toward black people or see if if prejudice might get in the way of his ability to fairly enforce the law. Is that your assessment from looking at it as well, or do you have a comment on why that would be? That would be my assessment now after looking at it. Stivers says he'd handle a similar situation differently today. You know, five years later, especially after we have to disclose this and <laughs> the very <laughs> uncomfortable conversation with a reporter, <laughs> uh, we always try to get better. And so I would definitely maybe direct the investigator. I would direct them a little deeper. So absolutely. Along with the Pearson investigation, Chief Stivers sustained three other discrimination complaints between 2016 and 2020, a pretty high rate when you look at complaint data reported to the state DOJ. And Avenal only has 17 sworn officers. For example, the Alameda County Sheriff's Department, which has 930 officers, say they have zero sustained discrimination complaints for the same time period. I kind of was more proactive than maybe most in handling those, those types of situations. The chief found four other officers had engaged in discriminatory behavior, including making derogatory comments about women and Spanish-speaking colleagues. Statistical data is what it is sometimes, but there's a story to be told behind it sometimes. For these lower-level offenses, officers received verbal counseling or letters of reprimand. But the important thing from Stiver's perspective is that something was done. They were handled, right? They weren't, like, swept under the rug or anything like that. We'll get a clearer picture of how law enforcement investigates and addresses discrimination among its own as records unsealed by the new law continue to come in. The public is is being let in bit by bit to this previously secret realm of police misconduct. That's David Snyder, executive director of the First Amendment Coalition. But with each new door that opens, it becomes obvious that there are several others that also should be opened. For The California Report, I'm Suki Lewis. Support for The California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Governor Gavin Newsom will be announcing the state's endemic plan later this afternoon, focusing on how Californians will move forward and live with the coronavirus, even as it continues to spread. Dr. Eric Topol with the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla got to review the plan. He tells KPBS in San Diego he wishes it was more comprehensive. I don't think that word endemic helps us at all. I think what we should be thinking about is, do we have the virus in containment? Are there very low levels? And what are we doing to keep it that way once we get there? 
Topol says he thinks the plan should be focused more on getting people vaccinated and boosted and recommends the state use emerging technologies that can track the spread of the virus. And that's the California Report for Thursday, February 17th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening and have a great day. As mentioned earlier in the newscast, this afternoon, Governor Gavin Newsom and other state officials outlined California's new long-term plan for COVID-19. According to a report in today's Sacramento Bee, the plan will focus more on flexible responses to future variants than on the strict frameworks officials used in the past. Officials said today that the state will shift from an emergency mindset to one that assumes we will live with the virus indefinitely. Health and Human Services Secretary Mark Galley outlined seven areas California will continue to monitor as cases from the latest surge fall and the state gradually relaxes rules around masking. Galley said, we're gliding into normal. We're not announcing the normal. The virus will drive what we do. Many leaders and health officials have begun to use the word endemic to describe the global battle with coronavirus. Infectious disease experts recently told the B that the term doesn't mean COVID-19 is any less dangerous now or that new variants won't raise the risk of death. According to today's San Francisco Chronicle, the state's new plan, called SMARTER, does not describe COVID as endemic or even use that word but addresses how California will respond to a virus that will remain with us for some time, if not forever. The plan is focused around vaccination and boosters, testing, masking, surveillance of the virus in communities, keeping resources at hand to quickly respond to new surges, keeping schools open, and improving treatments and access to them. It calls for creating a task force to improve indoor air quality and a study to assess the long-term physical and mental health risks associated with the pandemic. Governor Newsom, speaking this afternoon at a warehouse in Fontana, said California is moving toward a plan that allows people to live with the virus. We have all come to understand there is no end game. There is not a moment when we declare victory, the governor said. Turning to regional weather, daytime high temperatures will peak on Saturday, and then a relative cooling trend will develop for the next few days. A slight chance of showers on Tuesday, otherwise mostly sunny. North to east winds increasing Monday into Tuesday with locally breezy conditions into the middle of next week. With fuels at record dry levels for this time of year, we could see increased fire weather concerns. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, mostly clear with a low of 44. Slightly warmer Friday with a high of 63 and a low of 48. In Truckee tonight, mainly clear with a low of 16. Friday in Truckee, sunny with a high of 47 and a low of 16. In Sacramento this evening, a few clouds with a low of 38. Friday in Sacramento, partly cloudy with a high of 68 and a low of 38. The one-day count that supplies us with crucial information about our local unhoused population has been put off for the past three years, but it's coming back next week and Felton Pruitt is here with the details from Nevada County's Mike Dent. We're talking with Mike Dent. He's Nevada County's Director of Housing and Community Services and Child Support. 
And Mike, we're going to talk with you about the point in time count, which is coming up on Thursday, February 24th. Why don't you explain to folks what the point in time count is? Thanks, Milton. Yeah, it's this is an annual uh, process. And I say that because, and then I want to put a qualifier on it, that this is the first time in about three years that we're actually doing it. Thank you, COVID. The point in time count is required in January, usually it's the third week in January, every year by the Federal Department of Housing and Community Development. It's supposed to take a snapshot of the homeless populations within a jurisdiction. In this case, it's Nevada County to count, take a moment to count them, count who is sheltered and who is unsheltered, and try to get some additional information about them. How long they've been homeless, do they have it? There's a lot, about 30, 30 or so questions that are asked each individual if they're willing to participate in the count. Substance abuse, mental health issues, you know, are they a family? Is it just a single adult? Those sorts of things. And that is all reported up to HUD and then HUD takes the information in the, in the actual count of homeless people in your jurisdiction and will go back down to the states with an official number. And then that informs possible funding options for your jurisdiction. So it's not about the money, but it is more about learning the population and who's homeless in your, in your community. So we didn't do it in January of this year because of the Omicron, most counties and most jurisdictions in California, along with many other states in the United States, took the offer from HUD to delay it a month to try to get past the dark days of this new variant of Omicron. We also did not do a count in 2020 because of COVID. They took 2019 numbers and just rolled them forward for another year, they being the HUD department. And then last year, our homeless management information system data was accurate enough that HUD said, you know what, use your HMIS information that we use to track and, and maintain treatment, you know, basically see what services are being provided for anybody who's homeless in our county. That was 410 people. And they said, let's count that, let's use that as your point in time count. So we physically haven't gone out to count anybody who's homeless out, um, out in the streets for uh, three years. So yeah. this is a, a big day. This is a big time. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to be resuming our getting back to normal, you might say, Felton, with counting people face-to-face. I used to do interviews with a hospitality house regarding this, mm-hmm. but you're right. We haven't done any interviews in like two or three yeah. years now. So Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, Felton, we have been counting our sheltered individuals. I do have some information on that. If so the sheltered ones, that would be like the hospitality house or uh, domestic violence houses or folks that we have in transitional housing situations, whether it's a motel room or a shared living environment in the house. So we have continued to count our sheltered numbers, and we're actually starting to see some good information just beginning to trend on that. Uh, at the last point in time count, it was canceled in 2020, like I mentioned, we went ahead and did a sheltered count anyways, and we had 136 people who were sheltered. In July of 2020, we recounted our sheltered folks, and we had 164. So we've at, we added nearly 30 more sheltered individuals, and that's usually our community partners expanding their services, their transitional housing options, those sorts of things. So we're, that was a, a good direction. You're always going to have homeless individuals in our community, but the goal would be to try to have them sheltered, at least temporarily, instead of out in the elements. During our last point-in-time count last year in 2021, which was done using our 
homeless information system, we counted 238 that were sheltered. So that's we're trending in the right direction. We still have a bunch, you know, dozens and dozens that are not sheltered, but we are moving in that right direction. And that speaks to the partnerships that we're continuing to develop. And this is just not the county. This The big driving force on this is our local Nevada County Regional Continuum of Care, the COC. That is the entity. It's a nonprofit group of individuals, county and local providers, uh, nonprofit providers, uh, veteran services folks, that sort of thing, the hospital. We all work together to try to solve this homeless issue, and we all come together under the COC, the Continuum of Care. So they're the ones who are actually officially counting this point-in-time count. What does the public need to know about the point-in-time count coming up? Well, if you know somebody who is homeless, there are opportunities out there. You can call 211. You can reach our home team, which is 470-2686, 470-2686. They'd be interested to know if there's somebody that's homeless out there. They can reach out to them, see what services are available that may be needed with an individual. The big important thing is get get folks into the system, the homeless information system, because that makes referrals out to, let's say, it's a substance abuse issue or it's child care or uh, it's basic lifeline benefits like food or uh, medical insurance. All those referrals can be made out of the HMIS system and tracked that way to see that an individual is, is getting what they need. Nope. Not everybody will want to participate in the point-in-time count, and that's okay, too. They don't have to. But um, we usually do see a lot of in- engagement with our homeless population because they realize, hey, someone someone wants to know about me and wants to learn more about me, and, and it's an opportunity to also see if there's any services that can be offered. If people want more information about this, where can they go? Well, they can go to the Homeless Resource Council of the Sierras, H-R-C-S-O-C, Dot org, Homeless Resource Council of the Sierras. Also, the Better Together link in our county website, bettertogether.org, is another resource. We do have our past point-in-time count results posted on there. So you can learn more about that. Also, we're doing the same thing up in Truckee. There's the North Tahoe Truckee Homeless Services. They're handling the eastern side of the point-in-time counts. That is uh, um, a bit challenging because we have both Placer and Nevada County intertwined up there, and both counties work together closely on this point-in-time count in eastern Nevada County. But uh, the North Tahoe Truckee Homeless Services can be reached at same area code, uh, 386-7954. Well, thanks for all the information. No, thank you. Uh, Thanks for the interest, and we'll have the results of the Point in time count available and posted on our Better Together website probably in about three months. It takes about that long to go through each and verify the individuals and get rid of duplicates. Sometimes people get to count it twice. We've been talking with right. Mike Dent. He's Nevada County's Director of Housing and Community Services and Child Support. Thanks for all the information, and uh, we look forward to seeing the results of the point in time count. Mike? Thank you, Felton. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. My cat Mimi is at the vet because suddenly her back legs gave out and then only partially recovered, so she can't jump on the counter to escape her brothers who like to chase her around. I know little about cat illnesses, so I'm left wondering if she had a stroke or ate a bad gopher or something. 
She hasn't been to the vet in years, so had forgotten the indignities involved and was violently affronted at being shoved into a plastic box and driven around in a horrible moving vehicle. She yelled so loudly that the crossing guard, where they're doing that tree work on Broad Street, looked at my car in amazement and waved us right on. Did you know that Vladimir Putin, who is making very loud noises himself about starting a war with the Ukraine, is the grandson of Stalin's longtime chef? So he's been digesting Stalinism since he was knee-high to a balalaika, which explains a lot. News sources really ought to tell us about these connections when they're explaining geopolitical matters. I only found out from a writer friend over coffee this morning. When you know what the background is, the world makes much more sense. It really does. Maybe the problems at hand are still hard to solve, but at least the reasoning behind people's actions isn't completely random. The other thing I learned this week, randomly, was that Teddy Roosevelt lost his wife and his mother only hours apart on Valentine's Day in 1884, in the same house, no less. His wife Alice was up in their bedroom dying of kidney disease, and his mother was downstairs dying of typhoid fever. After he recovered, which took quite a while, this is thought to have influenced his work as president on the Square Deal and helping eradicate diseases related to urban poverty. Now I want to find out the backstory for everything. Why does Putin need a 10-foot-long table between himself and every other foreign leader when they're the only two people at the meeting? What makes Queen Elizabeth suddenly think Camilla should be called a queen? Some stories we already know, but think of the millions we don't. Why did Angela Davis and Gloria Steinem become activists? What made John Muir take off into the high country and leave society behind? It's also personal. That's why I like it. The size of the world and its problems often seem overwhelming to me. But if you can track something back to what one person's parent did for a living, the scale is much easier to understand. Now what shall I tell you? There should be a further point to be made here, but my mind has gone blank. I'm worried about Mimi, and it's very windy, which inspired the weather persons to talk about fire danger this morning, in February. The Ukraine is up in the air. The Olympics are full of strife over a heart medication. It's basically just chaos. I'd like to know where the descendants of Lenin's and Trotsky's chefs are right now. And also, while we're at it, what Brazil's President Bolsonaro's father did for a living. I hope one of you who loves research will get cracking and find this out for us. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, a new edition of Money Matters with host Mark Cunaberti.
At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Then KVMR returns to the music shows you love. Jazz Workshop with Derek Washington at 8, followed at 10 by Road Dog Radio with DJ Lama Socks. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street. Open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us tomorrow at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.